Well, good morning again. We are excited and expectant to begin this Advent season. And um, if you're like me and your Christmas decorations went up November the 1st, you're excited to stop taking abuse from your friends and family members who told you you were too early. You were not too early. You were just extra ready. <laughs> uh, well, no matter what camp you are in when it comes to Christmas decor and Hallmark movies and Christmas music in your vehicle, um, it's good news. It's Christmas time, and now you're safe. And over the next few weeks, no doubt you are going to be assaulted with countdowns of how many days you have left until Christmas. Maybe your family has a way to mark the days until Christmas. Pastor Diane has provided the kids today an awesome way to count down to Christmas. Make sure you grab one of those on your way out. Um, when I was a little girl, my grandmother at her house had this really cool advent calendar and it had a ribbon for every day of December and um, I would go every day and I would get to untie the ribbon and I would get a present <laughs> because I was spoiled <laughs> but it was uh, and I was probably mostly excited about the present but it was a great way to kind of prepare for Christmas and actually in the in the Christmas tradition uh, in the Christian tradition, today is actually the beginning of our liturgical year. And maybe you don't have a background. I have a background of, in a tradition that, that has a little bit more um, liturgy and formality to its practice. But we actually do have a Christian year calendar, and it starts with Advent. And the word Advent is actually derived from a Latin word called Adventus, which means coming. And it also translates to a Greek word, paris parousia, which means arrival. Specifically, in Christian theology, we are awaiting a coming arrival in Advent. And it has a double meaning for us as Christians, the arrival of Christ in human flesh and the second coming of Christ. Advent and Christmas are not merely just about the coming of Jesus, but about everything since the birth of Jesus and about what's to come. So we begin this season expecting the arrival of the Messiah. And I don't know if you know anything about this wreath. Pastor Mal did such a great job today of, of helping us prepare with that responsive reading. But if, if you don't, a little bit of history lesson for you this morning. Um, if you don't know about the beginning of Advent and the beginning of sort of an Advent calendar and the way that we started to mark this season, um, the story goes that in, in the mid-1800s, there was a, a Lutheran minister that worked at a children's mission in Germany, and he created a, a wreath out of the wheel of a cart. And the, the minister placed 20 small red candles in that wheel's outer ring and four larger white candles inside the ring. And so the children would come and they would light the red candles on the weekdays and the four white candles on Sundays. It helped the kids prepare for Christmas. And Advent wreaths eventually came to be made out of evergreen, which twist, twisted together as a circle, symbolized the continuous life that we have in Christ and um, sort of symbolizes this as they're in a ring, they symbolize like a wedding band, which, you know, helps us remember the unending love of Jesus in our lives. So each week of Advent, we're going to light a candle together. And on this first week of Advent, we lit the hope candle. In some traditions, they actually call it the prophecy candle. And it symbolizes the anticipation felt in waiting for the coming Messiah. And it also 
corporately helps us say that we collectively believe that we have hope in knowing that God is going to fulfill his promises. Dutch theologian Henry Nouwen says it this way. He says, we can only really wait if what we are waiting for has already begun for us. Waiting is never a movement from nothing to something. It is always a movement of, from something to something more. So that's what we are here to begin today, a period of waiting, of hopeful waiting from something to something more. So I think it's important to ask ourselves this morning, what does it mean to wait in this Christmas season with hope? And I want us to take a look at perhaps some passages of scripture that are maybe a little bit familiar to you, maybe not, um, but it, it, it's going to help us take a look at what hope has looked like for the people of God across the course of history. So we're going to turn to the book of Isaiah in a minute, Isaiah chapter 9, but Let's first talk about the context of the book of Isaiah leading up to the ninth chapter. And I'll just confess to you, the book of Isaiah is not an easy one to read. I think it's sometimes important for us to hear that from up here on a Sunday morning to recognize that there are sections of scripture that are just doggone hard to read. This, this book is one of them. Um, we enter into Isaiah in a world of division. Isaiah, this whole book is, especially these first eight chapters leading up to Isaiah 9, they're full of judgment in a world of division. From the get-go, let me give you a little bit of a look of what we know about the people of this time. We know that the people of these two kingdoms are full of sin. Chapter 1 tells us that they do not defend the orphan and that the widow's cause does not come before them. Chapter 2 tells us they, that they are consumed with idolatry, that they're haughty. They proclaim their sin. They're proud of it. They, chapter 3 tells us that they oppress one another. Isaiah chapter 5 tells us that social injustice in that day ran rampant, that the people called evil good and good evil and put darkness for light and light for darkness. So it's among this environment that Isaiah gets the call to become a prophet. And his very first vision leaves him absolutely overwhelmed by the holiness and the goodness of God. And he also has this recognition of his sin and, and the, the corporate sin of all people. And then God calls him to this seemingly strange and admittedly hard for us to understand call to tell the people that they're not going to understand what God is doing. So Isaiah, who's sort of incredulous at the collective sin that stands in the world, and this assignment that is before him stands and tells the people lament and lament and asks the question that we see when confronted with brokenness and calamity in the world over and over again in Scripture. He says, how long, Lord? How long will this last? And God's, God's purpose in these pronouncements of judgment is always always to give people the opportunity to turn, repent, lament, and repent. That's always the purpose of God's judgment, especially in the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah continues to remind the people over and over and over again 
over that entire first section of the book that the Lord is asking them to be obedient, that the Lord's saying, trust me, I've done it before, I'm going to do it again, I'm faithful. But the people, rather than trusting to God, were doing all sorts of things. We even see that they've decided to turn to mediums so that they can contact the dead because they believed that the dead had something to say about what was happening, that they would be able to predict their future. Chapter 7 and 8 turn us uh, to meet King Ahaz. King Ahaz, who was actually the ruler from the line of David at the time, is given specific instructions to trust in the Lord, to stand firm in knowing that God is with him, and has actually promised deliverance from the invading Assyrians. God even says to Ahaz, ask me for a sign. Ask me for a sign of my faithfulness. But Ahaz chooses to make an alliance with Assyria, rather than relying on what God says he's going to do. The king of the time is defiantly disobedient to God, and the kingdom experiences devastation and destruction as a result. The situation is bleak. Maybe there's a few things in this situation that feel familiar to us today. And then in Isaiah chapter 9, beginning with verse 2, Isaiah offers a counterpoint to the rulers of the day. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Out of the darkness comes this picture of hope and hope is a person, one who will hold the government in his hands, who will be a great light to those walking in darkness. Isaiah saw this messianic figure somewhere in the future who had divine qualities and yet, and yet would enter human history, ushering in an age of peace and righteousness. His greatness would bring peace. The word here is shalom. This word means wholeness, complete, that this ruler is going to bring wholeness to the earth. You see, from the earliest prophecies of the Messiah Messiah in the Old Testament, we're reminded, friends, over and over again that our hope is not found in our circumstances. I think about the many, many, many places that we try to place our hope today. We try to place our hope in election results. We try to place our hope in our checking accounts. We try to place our hope in in the outcome of a a promotion or in a relationship with another person. But the hope of our faith is not found in our circumstances. It's found in a person, the person of Jesus Christ Christ. And it is this distinction that makes our hope unique. Our hope is different 
from optimism. It's easy for us to have optimism in the world today. If we define optimism as the choice to see how our circumstances could work out for the best, then hope recognizes that even if, even if there is no evidence that things could get better, yet we still rely on the faithfulness of God. It motivates our hope for the future. You see, hope, hope helps us look forward by looking backward, by seeing what God has done and letting that propel a hopeful future ahead. This is the heart of what Isaiah was trying to get the people to see. Look what the Lord has done. Trust him to do it again. If we fast forward a few centuries in the Bible, we encounter another prophetic book. It's at the tail end of the Old Testament. It's called Malachi. And Malachi is essentially four chapters of God and the people of God arguing with one another about God's faithfulness about the people's disobedience, and about their covenantal relationship. So we we read these four chapters of really the people and God wrestling with one another. And when Malachi ends, we enter a a, a period of 400 years of absolute silence. The distance between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New was 400 years of absolute silence. There are no recorded prophecies during this time frame. There are no direct revelations recorded or direct words from Yahweh. Take a minute and sit in that. I don't know. This this is something that every Advent just strikes me as so remarkable. That leading up to the time of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and these words that that we read this time of year about the birth and the life of Jesus, there was 400 years of absolute silence. Can you fathom if you, nor your parents, nor their parents, nor their parents or their parents, had ever heard anything from the Lord? And how that would make you feel. I'd venture to guess that it would have been very hard to not feel hopeless. And after that period of 400 years ended, the people of God were being governed by a man named Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the son of Julius Caesar. He had assumed power after an extremely bloody civil war, which ended with the suicide of Mark Antony. Augustus is really credited with turning Rome from a republic to an empire. And here's here's the crazy thing. So Caesar Augustus declared that his dad, Julius Caesar, had been divine. And his, his messaging was that in his rule, he was going to bring justice and peace to the whole world. And by declaring his father divine, he called himself the son of God. He fashioned himself a savior. And the truth is that by many, many people in the empire, he, he was worshipped by them as a god. His promises of peace were not shalom, were not wholeness that the world needed. 
the peace that the kingdom of Caesar Augustus promised was a peacekeeping, not a peacemaking. It propped up an earthly empire. It didn't give wholeness and healing and restoration to all people. So enter, after this 400 years of silence, into this kingdom, the story of two women who were unexpectedly pregnant. One because she was too old, her name was Elizabeth, and the other because she was unmarried, her name was Mary. They're both given this divine revelation of their pregnancies, and Mary is told by the angel Gabriel that she is carrying the Son of the Most High, that the Lord God would give him the throne of David his father, and that he would reign over the house of Jacob forever, and that his kingdom will never come to an end. And so Mary receives this revelation, if you can imagine, as, as a young woman that she's appeared to by an angel in an environment in which she's being told that she already has a savior because of the ruler of the empire. And this message comes and turns her world on, the ha on its head. And she says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors." See, Mary's song is full of things that she would have recited from childhood. It's full of the things that she had reminded herself over and over and over again that God had done and that he had said he was going to do. It's full of hope. Scholar N.T. Wright says it this way, and I love this. He said, this pronouncement from Mary is the gospel before the gospel. It's a fierce, bright shout of triumph 30 weeks before Bethlehem, 30 years before Calvary and Easter. These words are all about revolution. You see, Mary and Elizabeth, and I wish we had time today to unpack their relationship and how it's this beautiful example of two women that, that recognized the giftedness in one another and what was happening, and they rejoiced and they praised together, and they had a dream they had a dream that everything that the prophets told them would come true, that all nations would be blessed through Abraham's family. Mary's song grounds this praise in God's present activity and God's faithfulness in an ancient promise. Her song highlights who God is. You see, we serve the God who says he is bringing his people deliverance. 
We serve a God whose nature is merciful. We serve a God who remembers the lowly and cares for the needy. God is literally breaking into history. He's moving into the neighborhood. He's putting on flesh to bring the true ruler of a kingdom, not one who is interested in propping up his own agenda and offering prosperity to only a select few, but to offer a kingdom that will lift up the humble, that will fill the hungry with good things and extend his mercy from generation to generation. Mary demonstrates hope. She realizes that hope can only be found in Emmanuel, the God who is with us. Does she understand the particular set of circumstances by which this is going to take place? No. Do the surrounding circumstances seem to point to a massive redemption coming? No. Remember here that Jesus was essentially born as a refugee amongst a genocide. Herod announces that he's going to kill all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or younger. Let's not forget that what Mary was facing here is an incredibly difficult reality. She's a pregnant, unmarried woman with a story that is absolutely preposterous to the people around her. She's in for a tough future, and yet... She remembers, and she hopes. She looks backward so she can see forward. Mary had to wait to see the fulfillment of God's promise to her. Her song helped her remember what God has done and pointed to the who she could trust in for her future. <laughs> the prophecy from Isaiah that was long awaited was coming true. The Savior, the Wonderful Counselor, the Prince of Peace was coming just as God said he would. And with him and in him, we find true hope. Not just optimism, but true hope. You see, the word for hope in Greek is elpis, which means an attitude of confidently looking forward to what is good and beneficial and beautiful. And in the book of Matthew, we see these words quoted from Isaiah. Here is my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And in his name, the Gentiles, that's you and me, will el peace, will hope. We will confidently look forward to what is beneficial and good and beautiful. And friends, if God thought it important to remind people of his kingdom come, even in the midst of these dark circumstances, then we know, we confidently know that his desire to provide us hope is one that stands even when it feels like everything around us is dark and uncertain. Advent offers us an invitation to learn, to wait with expectation, to on one hand absolutely recognize that everything is not right in this world, but to know that God cares enough to send his son to our very neighborhood, to put on flesh, 
to show his love for us and to enact a kingdom that is full of hope and wholeness for the whole world. You see, we live in what you might consider a little bit of a peculiar time. We are a people who have realized that God's kingdom come, God's kingdom has come through the birth and the life and the resurrection of Jesus. And yet we also know that the full realization of that kingdom will come when Jesus returns. Biblical scholars in our time refer to the kingdom of God as an already and not yet kingdom, indicating that we are living in the kingdom of God today, but we have not yet realized its fullness. And if you sit in that for a minute, if you think about it, we feel that every day. Living with hope means that we know that because of Jesus, we have a future that is better than the present. So when we live through a week like the one we just have, with news headlines that are filled with senseless killings in places like retail stores and nightclubs, we rightfully lament. We rightfully cry out against injustice. We realize anew that this world is not as it should be. And it is this incomplete sense, this realization that there's a gap between the kingdom to come, the one that is full of redemption and restoration and the reality that we live in today. And that incomplete, that sense of incompleteness is what should turn our hearts to hope, to Jesus, this Advent. The Book of Common Prayer says, likewise, we are in a world pregnant with hope. And we live with the coming expectation of the coming God's kingdom on earth as we wait, we work, we cry, we pray, we ache. We are the midwives of another world. Isaiah lived in a desperate time. Mary found herself in a desperate situation. And in each situation, the work of the Savior is clear. He has come to save us personally. Praise the Lord that he has come for you and for me personally, but he has also come to bring hope and restoration to the darkest of situations. Living with hope means we realize that we live in a broken world. We need a Savior personally, but so does a world that still contains oppression, that still contains abuse, that still contains systemic racism. Mary and Isaiah were restless with the reality that was in front of them because they knew that there was more than just their personal salvation at stake. There is a world in desperate need of more than optimism. Our, friend, our friends, our, our world needs the hope of Jesus, the one who is making all things new, in Revelation, we get this picture, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, 
beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. There's a, a German theologian by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer was born in 1906. And um, he came to the United States as a young man to study theology and then returned to Germany. Um, in the late 1930s, he could see that war was imminent. Realize, of course, that he was growing up working out his, his sort of youth under the rise of Hitler. And so some of his friends from the United States said, Dietrich, war is coming. You don't belong in Germany. Come back to the United States and, and be here safely with us. And so Bonhoeffer returned to the United States in 1939. He was here for two weeks. And he realized that if his faith and his hope were authentic, he had come to the wrong place. In fact, he wrote a letter to his family, to his friends, and said this, I have come to the conclusion that I made a mistake coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. Christians in Germany will have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive, or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying civilization. <laughs> I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice from a place of comfort and security. And so Bonhoeffer returns to Germany, and he joins the German resistance because he recognizes the absolute injustice that is occurring against Jewish people in his country and beyond. It wasn't long after that, a few years after that, that Bonhoeffer's contact with the resistance and the work that he had done on the ground to witness faithfully to the hope of Jesus Christ landed him in a, in a Nazi prison. And Bonhoeffer spent his last advent behind prison walls. And in a letter he sent to his parents, he described how he saw a nativity scene with the family of the manger amidst the rubble of a collapsed house. And he called it particularly timely. And he said, amid the upending of the world, the fear of death, and the knowledge of our own failings and captivity, even here, one can and ought to celebrate Christmas. You see, through Advent, we learn how to live in these two concurrent realities. We've already been delivered, and yet our deliverance is to come. And it's this discontent 
within us that helps us turn to Jesus. One more quote from Bonhoeffer. He said, as we think about hopeful waiting, he said, not everyone can wait. Neither the sated nor the satisfied nor those without respect can wait. The only ones who can wait are people who carry restlessness around with them. Bonhoeffer would be taken to a concentration camp and hung. He, He was hanged just two weeks before the Allied forces would liberate that concentration camp. And yet, we see this powerful message of hope arising from a prison cell. And so, today, as Christians, we can recognize the fact that God cared enough to send his son to give us hope for today. And as we wait for him to come again, we wait with the assured hope that God will again do what he said he will do. And we are not a people who merely look to the one moment God broke into history in a manger in Bethlehem. We await his coming again in glory when the king's reign shall be on earth as it is in heaven. So what does it mean for you to wait with hope this Advent? I want to suggest to you that the first thing we can do is we wait in the word. Because if we are a people who need to look backward in order to look expectantly, hopefully forward, we need to be reminded of what God has done for us, for us and what he says he's going to do. And as today's focus on scripture reminded us, we, we need to have these things handy in our minds, in our hearts, the promises of God, so that when we encounter the injustices of this world, we can be reminded of what God has called us to do. Our church is offering you a great resource through this Advent study that's available in the lobby. Maybe there's one one thing that you might be able to do this Advent to take that next step in your walk with the Lord. It doesn't have to be this. Maybe it means finding an Advent study on the YouVersion app. Maybe it means following along with a, an app like, like TO365. Whatever it is, I encourage you this Advent to find a way to be in the Word. Second, we wait in community. Because as we discussed, the work of God is done in each of us individually, but it's also done in us collectively. We aren't meant to keep hope for ourselves Find a way to be in community this Advent. Visit one of our community groups. Our church is reaching out to our community in creative ways. You can go out to the Advent tree in the lobby this morning and you can pick up a way to be involved practically in our community this Advent through the giving of gifts, through the giving of your resources. Some of our community groups do really cool things like going out and having dinner and offering a massive tip to your server. We do things like serving at the Samaritan Community Center. We find ways to spread the hope of the gospel to our community. Not just in Advent, but especially in Advent. Finally, we wait actively. Henry Nouwen says, active waiting means to be present fully to the moment in the conviction that something is happening where you are and that you want to be present to it. 
What we learn through the word of God today through Isaiah and Mary is that God cares deeply about the world around us. The Savior of the world did not simply come because one day he's going to sweep us to heaven and away from all of this. He came so that his kingdom would make a difference in the here and now and for eternity. The world we are living in is not that different from the divided kingdom we read about in Isaiah or from the false promises of peace that were being peddled by the Roman Empire. In fact, we have to ask ourselves where we are complicit in bringing injustice to the world. We should ask the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the places that need shalom and how we might be agents of hope among them. Where can we demonstrate mercy? Where can we speak boldly? Where can we get uncomfortable this Advent? We opened our time together talking about this Advent wreath and about the candles that are contained within it. And what I love about the symbols of these candles and them growing in their light over the course of the next three or four weeks is that the light persists. Even in the dark places, the hope and the light of Jesus grows. And so as we have been given the light of the world, so we are called to go and be the light in the world. Friends, let's go to work for the kingdom in our lives, for the glory of the hope we have been given in Jesus. Would you pray with me?